uh, a day on the water. What a great day to go out boat on a boat. Oh, boy. Look at the kayak. Look at the kayak. Kayak. Yeah, nice. It is a perfect day to enjoy the pleasures of all of the bays on the south shore of Long Island, including Patchogue Bay right here. Yes, that is who you think it is. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a native New Yorker, holds a press conference surrounded by politicians and environmentalists down by the bay. But something is not right. The trouble is, these bays are sick. All is not well with them. And that is the problem we're here to deal with, because we have a record amount of brown tide. Brown and red tides are harmful algal blooms. It's like a carpet of living, toxic muck at the water's surface. They block the sun rays needed for eelgrass and other plants, which the fish and others feed on. And that also means more erosion, less fish, less mollusks, less shellfish. And so how do we stop this? Good question, Chuck. Scientists say the cause of algal blooms is increasing nitrogen pollution. And the best way to stop it is by getting appropriate sewerage and drainage so the nitrogen doesn't cascade into Patchogue Bay and all of the Great South Bay. Yup, your poop is the problem. Well, it's actually all human waste that ends up in hundreds of thousands of suburban septic systems and cesspools here. And much of this infrastructure is old and does a poor job at filtering out nitrogen. And some downtowns don't have sewer systems in place at all. And all of that poo has to go somewhere. And as we get more and more extreme storms with heavy rain, there's another issue. You know, when we talk about metropolitan areas like Metro New York, Chicago, um, Boston, Los Angeles, when the capacity of the wastewater system is exceeded, that water can be discharged into nearby water bodies. And that is a major human health problem. It's an ecological problem. Hydrologist Drew Grunwald says on Long Island and around the U.S., communities must prepare and people find ways to adapt to climate change. And that includes changing many of our relationships with water. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Sharing science matters more now than ever. The Alda Center for Communicating Science helps scientists and researchers share their work and its significance in powerful and engaging ways. In this way, we can all explore the wonders and joys of science together. Explore our professional development workshops and graduate programs to discover new ways to build trust and engagement in science. Learn more at aldacenter.org. Good morning, this is Drew. Hey, Drew, this is J.D. at WSHU Public Radio. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I called Drew to get down and dirty with aging wastewater infrastructure. He's a researcher at the University of Michigan, a state that had issued a public emergency over significant flooding from the Great Lakes. Southern Michigan experienced the worst-case scenario in early 2021. Two dams broke due to record rainfall. Many homes built right on the lake were destroyed. You know, when we hear the narrative about climate change, you, you know, a lot of the narrative started off with in the context of global warming, as if there was this one sort of predominant signature or signal across the entire Earth that the temperatures were going up. But of course, the reality is that at regional scales, there can be a wide range of impacts resulting from the overall warming of the globe. It's not just one major flood. The swelling of the Great Lakes has been happening for years. 
and that can overwhelm wastewater infrastructure. They were designed to handle precipitation at a magnitude and frequency that is changing. So now we're at a point where we have infrastructure that really wasn't designed with the best human health interventions. It's getting old and it can't accommodate the new changes in the way rainfall is coming down. Well, we like to say sewage isn't sexy, but it's important that we address the issue. <laughs> Back on Long Island, Adrian Esposito is the executive director of the advocacy group Citizens Campaign for the Environment. She's about to show us how Drew's lessons from Michigan apply here. We are in Northport Harbor on Long Island's North Shore. In 2006, Northport was hit with red tide. It was the first time an explosive growth of algal bloom was discovered here. The village was concerned that they would get blamed for red tide. The town was concerned that they might have to um, pay for fixing something. Um, the community was concerned that people would eat shellfish tainted with red tide. Esposito says the red tide in Northport put water quality issues on the map. It served as a warning that Long Island must upgrade its wastewater infrastructure and replace the old septic systems and cesspools, which are the largest contributor to nitrogen pollution. They just kept putting in septics, 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 and it never really seemed to dawn on anyone, any kind of a planning entity, that, um, hey, wait a minute, you know, when you put in a million septic tanks into your groundwater, you probably don't want to mix your drinking water with your untreated sewage waste. So now that that is uh, identified as a real issue for us and a challenge, we need to act. Something changed in Northport and in other coastal communities. When uh, we first put together our uh, Northport Harbor Protection Coalition, there was a, f a lot of fear. But now, Long Island has a plan for that. Peter Scully is in charge of water quality at one of the two county governments here in the suburbs, Suffolk County. For the very first time in history, we have environmental groups, local governments, the business community, organized labor, and the building trades all coming together, rowing in the same direction uh, for the implementation of a long-term wastewater infrastructure plan. It's really a unique moment uh, in history. As deputy county executive, Peter has for the last few years worked with groups like Adrian's and other residents to plan for long-term water quality improvements. No solution can be successful unless it is supported by the community, and that's really the importance of community-based planning. Replacing septic tanks with a sewer system requires a significant investment, planning, and engineering. Northport made a $12 million upgrade to its sewage treatment plant over several years, which reduced its nitrogen discharge by 75%. Towns and villages typically can't fund these projects on their own. Peter says funding from the county, state, and federal government can be intermittent. And the other issue is simply the sprawling suburban nature of development here. For uh, many areas of Suffolk County, a sewering uh, will never be a practical or cost-effective solution to the wastewater problem simply because that um, developmental densities in many of suburban and suburban rural communities uh, where you have, um, you know, one home for every few acres, the cost for each home to connect to sewers would be well in excess of $100,000. So in addition, Peter also manages a program that offers up to $30,000 grants to eligible homeowners to have a certified contractor install 
an advanced nitrogen filtering septic system. It's a volunteer program. Because elected officials are not, simply not going to enact policy requirements that force a homeowner to reach into their pocket and install a $15,000 or $20,000 system. It's just not going to happen. But here's the thing. There's more than 360,000 antiquated cesspools in Suffolk County. Since 2017, when the septic improvement program started, just 2,300 residents have applied for the grants, less than 1% of properties that need an upgrade. Most grants are prioritized to people who live by the water. Even with those issues, the county's two-pronged approach to solving its wastewater management problem is a model being reviewed in Hawaii, Maryland, and Massachusetts. Other communities where proximity to the ocean is forcing a reckoning with rising development and pollution. For decades, Long Island waters were naturally free of algal bloom because this area is home to one of the largest hard clam, oyster, and bay scallop fisheries in the Northeast. Shellfish filter nitrogen from the water, but this natural resource eventually was outmatched by growing levels of pollution. In the last two years, we've had total bust harvests. That's why we're hitting the road today to East Hampton, near the end of Long Island's South Fork. This is where Barley Dunn manages the town's shellfish hatchery. In front of us is this large government facility that was used to test torpedoes in the bay during World War II. This installation forced the historic fishing community here to move to the other side of downtown Montauk, something we'll talk about next episode. After the war, this facility transitioned into a federal ocean science lab until the 1970s. For the last decade, it's housed in an incubator for shellfish. We hatch every all of our shellfish in the hatchery starting in February. Start our spawning in February, starting with oysters, and we spawn clams, and then we finish off with scallops. On this hot summer day, activity around this harbor on the bay is much slower moving than the popular Hamptons beaches just down the road. And then everything transitions from the hatchery where we grow the food, pump and filter the water. We transition it here to the nursery where everything is fed on ambient bay water, so it's just water directly pumped in right from the harbor. But first, we step inside to meet Amanda Dowman. Environmental aid, or AKA the algae queen. <laughs> this algae queen is the head chef making vials of nutritious meals for baby shellfish. Yeah, some of them are nice and dark, like that one over there kind of looks like Coca-Cola. Um, and uh, the darker they are, that means that the more cells you have per uh, drop. So if they're a dark brown, that means there's just a lot more of them there's in a there. Lot of, a lot of them in there. And this is just good eating. Yes. So they're very tiny. They're what the they're basically baby's first food. Barley and I move through the facility. That's the blower. It's going to get really loud. So for all of our tanks, anyone who has an aquarium or you know a swimming pool, we provide air to all of our tanks to keep the water circulated, keep the dissolved oxygen levels up. So that's what that sound is. It's, a, it's an air compressor. This is our Brewstock conditioning tank. So it's a 300-gallon rectangular tank. We'll bring in our, our spawning adults called Brewstock. So that's a six to eight-week process, you know, changing the water several times a week, constant feeding. And then we bring them into the hatchery room, which is here. Each room has an elaborate system of water pumps and heating elements to change the temperature of these tanks that the shellfish are in. Once it's summertime and the conditions are right, Barley moves everything from the hatchery to the shellfish nursery so the babies can grow on bay water safely. 
To get to the nursery, we take a drive 20 miles down the road. Well, this time of year, it's really pretty much ideal growing temperatures. The water is right around 70. And once they grow big enough... Time to get ready to spawn. Just like a lot of land animals that are mating and creating their babies during the spring, the reason why they do that is because there's tons of food, right? And it's the same thing with these estuarine animals. Outside near the bay are large tanks. And they're all in what we call upwelling tanks or downwelling tanks, so they're up and down is, refers to the direction of water flow through the seed mass. The scallop seed mass is on that mesh, and the water is just constantly flowing through them. So all they have to do is sit there and eat. So I'm going to take a, take a sample of scallops right off the mesh with a pipette and do the old, you know, what we always used to do in the restaurant with our straw, playing with the straw. Put your finger on one end, open it up, sucks up a sample. He motions over to a small wooden building while we walk and talk. And then we've got what looks like not much, but under the scope, they're going to be hopefully jumping around. So your lab is um, different from a scientist's. Could you describe it real quick while you get that into focus? Uh, this is what well, we call it, rightfully, the shack. We have our dissecting scope here. The real lab is out at the hatchery where we grow all of our algae. We make the nutrients for the algae. Um, everything's sterilized, autoclaved. But this is all, you know, it's basically a field, it's basically a field site. Barley is bending over a microscope, getting his baby scallops into focus. See the foot and the gills, the beginnings of the sensory tentacles. Check it out. Focus right there. All right, let's see. Oh my gosh, look at them. So we've got what looks like these little itty bitty scallops with, with little... I don't know, are they tendrils that we yeah, got? Those sensory tentacles that are sticking out of the, and then there's the main, the foot that's closer to the hinge. We've got that poking out. And by the time we're done here, they'll, they'll actually be stuck to the glass. They will attach themselves to the glass. But that's a, that's a good sign. It's a sign of health. It's just what we want to see. So what am I looking for here? This one has, is showing you its eyes. Oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> He's looking right back at me. <laughs> Hard to make out 28 pairs of them, so they're going to develop more of those later. I mean, me and my four eyes, I can barely see him, so <laughs> he's doing better than I am. We step outside to put the baby scallops back into their tank. And from here, once they reach a certain size, usually a few mil millimeters, we'll then move them to field sites. In the wild, that's when all the threats that impact the shellfish populations come into full view. What we're seeing is it's kind of a perfect storm. First is a possible predator in the cow nose ray. The cow nose ray is not from around here. It's from waters down south near Maryland. It's coming up here because the waters are warm and there's plenty of food. They're not here on vacation. They're here for a reason. The scallops are also threatened by a possible parasite that could have been triggered by warmer bay waters. As well as increased threats from predators and parasites, these warming waters due to climate change have disrupted the life cycle of Long Island's shellfish. Barley says hotter temperatures cause the shellfish to spawn earlier in the year. It makes it super stressful in part because there's less oxygen available in the water. That combination of warm water, stressful event, low dissolved oxygen is another thing that could possibly be wiping out the base scallop. And this is where those historic algal blooms we began with become an existential threat. Back in the 80s, we had the brown tide come through. East coast wide, and it just, it, it 
knocked the whole shellfish population back to about 20% of what it was before that bloom. As a result, nearly 90% of bay scallops have died off since then. Saying this is an uphill battle for baymen like barley is an understatement. While warming waters are a global challenge, he says communities on Long Island can still help to change course locally by installing those advanced septic systems we already talked about, reducing harmful nitrogen in the shoreline waters. Obviously, go to the source and alter our septic systems, which are really just glorified outhouses, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a hole in the ground where all of our waste gets dumped, and eventually it works its way to the groundwater. Those excess nutrients work their way to the water and do their damage. In many ways, Barley says the whole hatchery system is just buying time. With putting shellfish in the water to deal with these excess nutrients, we're, we're trying to mitigate the issue before the, the, the innovative alternative septic systems can reach their capacity on land. My name is Charles Lane. I'm a reporter here at WSHU. Last summer, I started looking into the closing of a rundown motel in the Hamptons on Long Island. And the deeper I dug, the more disturbing it became. What I found was a secret campaign to rid the Hamptons of the places where Latino immigrants lived. This campaign stretched from a small civic group through Southampton town government and all the way to the White House. The story is called Everytown, and you can listen by searching your podcast app for Everytown, or you can click the link in the show notes to this podcast. Shellfish have always played an important role in the natural process of filtering nitrogen pollution from our bays and other bodies of water. But now there's new attention to an old crop with a long history of cultivation in Japan, the Philippines, and with Native Americans, and it does the same thing. Kelp. It's a type of seaweed that's large and brown, very different from what makes up algal blooms. Kelp is an exciting new uh, mariculture product. Um, it helps clean up the water. It takes nitrogen out. It takes CO2 out, which is a big contributor to ocean acidification. And, um, you know, and now it's become a superfood. A superfood? Uh, it's used a huge amount of protein that comes out of it. Uh, it's used for animal feed. It may even help us cure global warming because they're finding sea kelp when fed to cows reduces the methane that comes out of cows by about 80%. We've seen even beer made out of sea kelp. George Hoffman with the Setauket Harbor Task Force organized this gathering of scientists and community fishermen to harvest kelp. Since the early 2000s, the revival of kelp farming has been recognized as a way to improve water quality and provide habitat for fish and marine life. Seven of us cram onto a small harbor patrol boat. So we're going into Setauket Harbor, and Setauket, is an, uh, Setauket Harbor is an embayment of Port Jefferson Harbor. It's nice, it's a protected harbor. It's kind of a hurricane hole that the old mariners used to know, you know when to go in. Back in December, we put in four mooring anchors. 200-pound anchors each with buoys on top. They ran a 100-foot line between the anchors. And it comes like, a, it looks like fish, fish filament, but it's got little seeds on it. And we roll it on the line, and then you just wait a couple months, and now we're here for uh, harvesting, you know? Marine biologist Aaron Freeman is on board. I've been working on this kelp, growing it in different locations and figuring out the right conditions for growth. Uh, over for this is my third year working on it. And it's bloomed from just a pilot project in one, two docks 
to four docks last year. Now we've got it at um, several docks and up to 12 sites across Long Island. They're going to pull up one end of the line and connect it to a hook on the boat. As it's coming out of the water, we'll somehow try to pull it off the line and stuff it into these bags. If it's too hard to pull it off, we have got shears to cut it. Uh, but I suspect it's fairly, it's only, I suspect, about a meter long at the longest here. So is it kind of like, I guess, uh, texture-wise or size-wise, is it like kind of like pulling ties out of the water, like dress ties out of the water in size, or are they going to be Wet thinner? Wet ties might be a good metaphor for this, yes. Um, probably, well, depending on the size, probably the broad ties that, <laughs> I don't know, um, not the thin ones. They will take the harvest back to a greenhouse to study it. The goal here is to create recommendations to help farmers plan for the next planting season during the winter. And this site we're at here is now both got what looks like decent growth uh, and it's also sort of pristine waters. So it's, it's more of an um, approximation of what it this would be like if it was an agricultural product. Kelp farming can provide Long Island oyster farmers with the means to diversify crops and create additional revenue streams. It's a relatively new crop here, so researchers are mapping out the right the conditions. Aaron is pulling kelp off the line with Emma Forbes, a state aquaculture specialist. She's working with New York Sea Grant to come up with guidelines for how municipalities can permit shallow waters for kelp farming. The only way to do it is through a research permit. And we're also working on understanding what can happen post-harvest, so the processing of it um, for food, if it's going towards um, like a cosmetics, if it's going wherever it's going. So we're working on understanding like what can be done with that in New York. That way local governments can make what's now a research operation into a commercial business. Aaron dunks the bags overboard to wash off any dirt and keep the kelp moist. Yeah, I can definitely see uh, mud coming off. He records data in his notebook, the amount of oxygen, nitrogen, and salt that's in the water, the harbor's temperature, and test results for heavy metals and toxic chemicals. And so these are just snapshots of what's happening now uh, and what's happening at these sites. This site this year, and obviously it could change, but um, if there were a lot of heavy metals in the sediments here that got stirred up, we'd find that now here. Uh, and it's good to know ahead of time uh, now rather than um, later on. If a bayman has a modest oyster farm that's just about an acre in size and also grows kelp from January through May, scientists estimate that one acre could yield 70,000 pounds of kelp in a single year. And that represents the capture of hundreds of pounds of nitrogen, the equivalent of about 20 advanced septic systems. And remember, this sugar kelp is a superfood. It's a big tourist hit in some local restaurants. We're going to focus on tourism in our next episode, but we can't leave here without a taste. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. What does it taste like? Tastes like chicken. Here you go. What does it really taste like? I don't know. You tell me. A little bit of lettuce. <laughs> a little bit of lettuce. It's chewier than lettuce. Salty. Yeah. Umami flavor, I think. Right? Yeah. Is that what they call it? Hmm. Definitely salty. Yeah. Definitely salty. It's kind of like a sweet aftertaste, though. Yeah. yeah. Sugar. So the good thing about the kelp is it's it gives sort of a texture and a soups that you put it in, in addition to a little bit of flavor. So 
Yeah, the umami, which is the, the mouthfeel of, of things like miso soup, are really good. So it, it helps. It like replaces bacon in some cases. It's very, it tastes like a sea vegetable, yeah. which sounds silly, but that's yeah. exactly what it tastes like. I kind of like it. <laughs> what you want, who you be, what you need, why you talking to me? Don't be caught, I'm a needle to the weave. Better talk or you'll fall through the seams. Spit it out, what's your play? Think you're slick with your bag or what a tricks? I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips, just a suit in the shape of a tick. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Grone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. Sew it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind, and you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all. Sew it up, close the rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. What you lost, have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind, and you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all.